Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Manufacturing IT podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by Patrick Nazaro, who's General Manager for POMS Corporation. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. All right, great, great. Well, I appreciate your time, um, Patrick. POMS are one of those companies that I've, uh, I've very recently started working with, but also a company I've known a little bit within the kind of pharma life science space. It does seem like it's the life sciences best kept secret when it comes to MES. So maybe you can you know, shed some light a little bit on the business, you know, what you guys do. And um, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, oh, sure. Absolutely. So yeah, as you said, it, we're probably one of the industry's better kept secrets. We've actually been around since 1987. The company was founded in the late 80s uh, and under the name of Encode. And okay. they changed their name in the late 90s to Palms after having kind of created their first generation MES for the industry. And at that time, the industry really didn't have a lot of digital solutions managing the manufacturing processes. And so we were kind of a forerunner in that, in that time. And then uh, we were acquired by Honeywell in 20, okay. no, it was 20, 1999 and yep. spent about 13, 14 years working under Honeywell. And then in late 2012, Honeywell uh, decided to kind of start to divest their, their life sciences business a little bit and go in different <laughs> directions. And they sold Palms off uh, to Constellation Software. And CSI is a Toronto-based company, the largest vertical market software company in the world. And, and they've been our parent company since basically the beginning of 2013. And so in that time frame, maybe in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, we st started a second generation of the, of the Palms MES product. Okay. And then we reinvented that product again around 2018, 2019 to its current generation of um, software solutions. So yeah, we, we specialize in kind of the EBR um, space. And the, and the product's called PomsNet Aquila. Is that, is that yeah, how it's pronounced? So that's well, yeah. We we have a big <laughs> ongoing argument around here. About how to say it. Um, some of us prefer to call it Pomsnet Aquila. Some of us call okay. it. Some of us call it Aquila. Um, our marketing guy loves the fact that it rhymes with tequila. He has all okay. kinds of fun with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, regardless of how you, you call it, we rebranded the Pomsnet product in 2020, basically. Okay. And at that same time, we took the product and we. The Palmsnet name kind of came representative of a family of products instead of just okay. an MES. And Aquila is the MES portion, the primary product. We also have several other adjacent products underneath that complement the MES space. So now okay. into the Palmsnet family. Fine. Okay. Now that makes a lot of sense. And what are those kind of adjacent uh, solutions then? Yeah. So we have we have two that are currently um, in production and available, generally available to customers, and then we have a third one that comes out on Friday with our, our okay. next. Okay. Exciting. Yeah, <laughs> so it's really good timing. So the yeah. first two that are that are available in the market today, the first one's our product validation kit. And so one of the challenges that we see in the industry is obviously the validation process. You know, getting the customer to validate the software and to be comfortable to put it into production, and we have a product mentality here at Palms. And so we have gone through the exercise of validating and testing all of the core components of our, of our application, all the phases, all the operating procedures, the worksheets, all the various capabilities of the product. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we created a validation kit where we document okay. all the product validation, I mean, sorry, all the product requirements, and yep. then all the corresponding validation efforts that we've gone through, all the test cases, the test results, and we run that with every major release. And so that kit is available to customers 
to buy that jumpstarts their validation, basically allows them to cut 70 plus percent of their validation effort because they don't have to revalidate what we've already validated. Yeah, makes and a lot we of also, sense. Yeah, and we also, with that product, offer real-time audit support. So if a customer does get you know, audited by the FDA, we're available basically in real time, we'll drop everything and join the audit to help the customer, you know, pull test evidence or whatever it is the FDA or the regulatory authorities looking for. So that was kind of that first piece of, of adjacent functionality that we created. Yeah. And then the second just came out last year. So the, the product validation hit came out in 2020, about six months after we rebranded. And then last April, we released a um, reporting capability that we call Palmsnet Falcon. And okay. it's basically in its, its advanced business intelligence sitting on top of our, our, our data. We have a huge amount of batch data. Yeah. And one of the challenges customers have is consuming and looking at this batch data. And most MBS solutions offer the batch data in some sort of PDF form, which is really very unnavigable. It's just you can't. Yeah. It's really hard to digest hundreds of pages of an EBR and really make sense of, of, of what's going on. And so what we did was we took all that data and we, we rationalized it into a reporting repository, a database repository that customers can either build their own custom reports on or we pr provide a series of dashboards and standard reports. And that has been hugely popular with customers who have adopted it. Because again, it just, to be able to visualize the EBR mm -hmm. and, and where the exceptions have occurred and, and where the challenges are and, and the status of things, just it's, a, it's major for customers. Yeah, I, I guess that that makes a lot of sense on, on both of the adjacent yeah. products there, Patrick. So where, whereabouts in the market is kind of POMS pitching their kind of go to market with life science and pharma companies? You know, wh what type of customer is your your ideal one? Wow, that's that's a tough question because we have a very diverse <laughs> customer base. Um, we've had a very long standing relationship with a lot of the big pharma companies. Mm. So we, we really kind of cut our teeth in the traditional pharma uh, tech pharma. production and biotech production areas. Um, we don't do a lot with discrete manufacturing. So medical devices, although we do have one or two customers in that space, not necessarily a great fit because our yeah. customer base, our customer, our product is really designed to manage and help the processing, the process mm -hmm. manufacturing space, not discrete. Um, but we increasingly are getting into the, the cell gene space. And so we now yeah. have several customers who are either in the process of adopting or have gone live on, on POMSnet in their, their CGT facility. So it, it, it really will look big and small. Um, yeah. We've got a, just a wide variety of customers up and down the gamut. So. No, that's great to hear, Patrick. So what, what about yourself then? What, what's been your journey to, to get to kind of where you are at top <laughs> of the tree for, for POMS? Yeah, that's, that's kind of a long, that's a long story. <laughs> um, I have been running POMS now for about three and a half years, but I've actually been in the MES space for 27, 28 years. Wow. And I happened into the space. It wasn't really something I planned. I, I came out of college with an aerospace engineering degree, went to work for, for Boeing of all places, and I was designing wings there. And, I, and I, I did my master's work while I was there. And in the process of doing my master's thesis, I wrote a series of software programs. And I, that process kind of led me to the realization that I actually enjoyed writing software far more than I did the aerospace bit, a lot okay. more. So it's the mid nineties at Seattle, software is exploding. And of course, Microsoft's leading the way. They're the big 
the big gorilla in the room. And, and I decided to, to leave Boeing and go to work for a small company in Redmond, Washington, by the name of Magic. And Magic mm -hmm. specializes in MES solutions for the pulp and paper industry. And you know, at the time, I thought to myself, mm, I don't know, manufacturing, <laughs> pulp and paper. But I, it you know, seemed like a good opportunity for me. And, and I, I dove, kind of dove in head first. And in that first year I was there, I had a series of realizations that kind of set me, really kind of redirected me and set me in, in my current trajectory. Um, the first is the realization that manufacturing is hard. I mean, process <laughs> manufacturing in particular is hard. And so if you want to get into solving complex problems and, and writing software to solve those problems, you really couldn't ask for better opportunities in the manufacturing space. Just so ripe for all kinds of innovation. And so this realization of it isn't about whether it's glamorous or not, but whether the real problems you get to work on, that was my first kind of epiphany. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And then the second was um, Magic is a small company, very client intimate company, much like Palms is. And so you had a chance to work directly with users, end users. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to sit across the table and say, see the end work result of your work presented yeah. to the user and this the sudden light bulb for them to come on and realize how much their life was going to get better, their work life, mm -hmm. you know, because of their, what you've just done for them. It, I, I never really realized how deeply satisfying that would be for me personally until I got to go through it. And then, of course, the third thing was that the people at the company were just a fantastic group of people. And so it was that realization that you, I was working with intelligent, motivated people who actually cared about me, right? Mm. And, and so to kind of feel like that and, and to get that sense of belonging and so they really cared beyond work, um, those three things kind of came together in that first year. And it just really set me on a path where I invested myself into the company, you know, wholeheartedly. Um, held various roles throughout the years there, all in the R&D organization from software developer to technical lead, leading teams to finally the R&D director slash VP. Mm. And um, in 2010, Magic was acquired by Constellation. And then in 2012, <laughs> Constellation acquired Palm. So in those first few years of the overlap, I had a chance to you know, get to meet some of the Palms folks and meet, you know, to get to know a little bit about their product. And um, yeah, in 2018, when the opportunity came up, the, the current GM was retiring. I, I jumped at the chance to come run this company. It's a fantastic company. So it, it, that sounds like a great journey. And it, feels, it sounds like what you experienced in that first period of magic is, is what most people spend their whole career searching for, you yeah. know, recognition of success with the customer, you know, a good culture to work in, but also mm -hmm. then actively challenged on a day-to-day basis, really kind of finding complex challenges. So it sounds like a great grounding. Yeah, I, I'm really fortunate in a lot of respects. Looking back on it, so much of it was unplanned, but mm. also kind of recognizing in the moment and going with your gut. I think those yeah. things kind of allowed me to, to head the path I'm on and it's just it's been a great journey. No, it makes sense. And, and something you mentioned there, Patrick, is, is kind of what I'm going to talk about now, I guess, because it was an area I was keen to kind of speak about maybe later in the flow. Um, but essentially your journey into MES was from the software side, the IT side. Now, I've got this big conversation I have with a number of my clients across all different types of manufacturing process in different industries. What is the best way to, to get experience within MES? Is it from the OT layer working up? Is it from the IT work layer working down? Most people I speak to come from their OT side. You've obviously come from the IT side. So what's your take on understanding the, the shop floor complexities, the manufacturing challenges 
um, with, with, with your background? Yeah, I, I honestly actually think that probably coming up through the OT side is going to provide more opportunity and, and allow employers to uncover those, those GEM employees and really allow them to grow and transition than the IT side. Um, I, I, I just think on the IT side, we're so conditioned to some extent to focus on the software itself, yeah. which isn't really the most important part at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the OT side, when you come up through that side of the house, you, you truly kind of have a better understanding and you're much closer to the overall manufacturing process itself. And you recognize the importance that software and digitization play in that, mm. but, but you haven't kind of lost sight of, of the business itself and what you're trying to accomplish. That's not to say that you don't have success on both sides, but of course, um, yeah, I, I think probably in general, it's the OT side you're going to have. You're going to have better luck with. Now, I will caveat that it really kind of depends <laughs> on what role you, you're looking for, right? I mean, if you're if you're building out solutions um, at some level, building software is is in itself a skill and a science, mm. right? So, um, you do want to to make sure the people you're putting in those roles are able to build software that's sustainable and scalable, extensible, yeah. and can kind of grow with your business. So. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it's always interesting to, to, to hear other people's take on that. And it's, you know, a, a subject that I discuss almost on a daily, you know, weekly basis with clients about looking for that utopia profile and type of candidate. Yeah. So makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess, you know, it's not often I chat to someone with you know, 27 years experience in the MES domain, and I appreciate what we've discussed, but, you know, maybe not going back as far as that, but you know, over the last kind of 10 to 15 years or so, um, what are the huge changes that you've seen in the MES space and, you know, challenges that manufacturers are having now that they didn't have before or, or challenges they had before that have been solved by MES? What's the real kind of success story of MES that you've seen? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you, if you look back 10 or 15 years, the, the, the industry is really kind of still grappling with or, or is just kind of finally coming through truly understanding what it takes to, to manage IT systems. Um, I, I think largely now, large manufacturers in particular understand the importance of cybersecurity and, and solid, reliable networks and all the kind of infrastructure that goes with it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, that the industry spent a lot of time working its way through that. I think that's a, just a natural progression. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't intuitive to leadership, you know, at manufacturing companies early on for sure. And I think now the, the new generations of leaders do understand it implicitly. And so yeah. that, that kind of big change has been huge because you can't really adopt any kind of digital solution if you don't first have that kind of understanding of the complexity of it and, and what you're really trying to undertake. So I think that's been big. No, that makes sense. And um, I put out a poll on LinkedIn um, looking for what's, what's been the biggest challenge with driving digital transformation. Uh, and that was off the back of a conversation I had with a CIO at a big pharma company. And you know what was overwhelming was that skill shortage talent gap yep. that was the that was the number one challenge of driving digital transformation very closely followed by um, stakeholder resistance um, <laughs> what, what what are your thoughts on on those two areas yeah i i would totally agree with both of those <laughs> things and, and you know i i might even flip them to some degree because i think the availability of talent we're certainly feeling the pinch now right the last mm. three or four years have been extremely difficult for employers to find really good talent. Um, and I think the newer generations are coming up and are they're less willing to define themselves by their jobs, right? I, mm -hmm. I know when I, 
when I was young, it was all about what I did and, and how well I did it. And I think today that's not quite the same. And so finding those true, those true gems is harder and, and they're in yeah. demand for sure. Um, but I think that will kind of ebb and flow a little bit. Whereas I think stakeholder resistance is something that just seems to be a, con a constant. I don't know how to, how to kind of press. I'm maybe slowly moving itself out yeah. again, maybe a generational thing. But uh, yeah, those, that, are, those are both difficult challenges for sure. That, that was my thoughts. It's maybe a generational thing with, with a, a different uh, leadership coming through the digital native younger generation become taking right. the more leadership positions understanding that interconnected world and, and the kind of only knowing that space so that that's something i've, I've long considered um, yep. and, and in terms of that kind of skull shortage it, what what do you think is a, a solution for how we get more younger generation gen z's you know even millennials i guess into manufacturing because if we talk about getting that shop floor experience understanding the process understanding the business case it, you know, parking the IT side just for one moment, you know, how do we get them onto the shop floor? How do we get them into manufacturing? You know, what do you think on that, Patrick? Yeah, I, I think it's all about exposure, right? I think I think you need to, we need to educate and get to, to the students and, and the generation at a younger age and help them understand that basically everything you own or touch or interact with in the real world has been probably manufactured by somebody, by something, right? Mm -hmm. And so do you ever stop and wonder where your iPhone came from or, or where your tablet came from and what the process it was to, to produce that, right? I don't, I don't know that we do a great, a great job of kind of really helping mm. people understand, especially at a younger age, make those connections and say, look, that just didn't, you know, show up mm. out of thin air. Somebody actually took the time to think about the problem of solving the production chain for that. And in and, and doing that, I think you, you get to open people's eyes and help them understand that there's, there's a lot that goes into the things that you touch every day. So I think it's just about outreach. It's got to be done in a younger age. So yeah, that, that educational piece and making making people making more awareness from maybe a school level all the way through. Yep. Yeah. What what, what what do you think about the um something I'm seeing more of? And I'm not sure, you know, I, I work across multiple different industries. And I guess with the regulations in pharma in life sciences, it might be harder for this adoption, but I'm having more conversations with with companies about you know their footprints and footsteps into the metaverse and digital manufacturing in the metaverse. Have you had much kind of conversation about that at all, Patrick, or much kind of time to think about that? You know, we we haven't. We've not put mm. a lot of uh, brain cycles into that kind yeah. of stuff. I, I think it's a, a really a bit too early for our industry. Yeah. I think we still have a lot of challenges in front of us that we'd be better <laughs> served to focus on <laughs> the next three to five years. Yeah, um, I, I do think some of the technologies, not necessarily the metaverse per se, but I mean, I think when you talk about AR, you talk about AI, ML, some of these other technologies, I think there is some real potential for them. I still think we're a good five plus years away to really start to realize it. And I think the challenge is not that the software itself can't be written or that there aren't people out there now to do it. I think the, the challenge is the data. You know, yeah. those programs run on massive sets of data. That's how they, they're trained and that's how they're most successful. And I think when you look at us, companies are not necessarily willing to share that yet. They're not at a point where you can create a massive enough data set to truly have an amazing predictive AI capability. Mm. Even within the large production companies, the commercial companies, I still think the data sets are probably 
maybe big enough, but not necessarily, right? They're, they're, it's massive amounts of data to train these things. So I think the industry needs to figure out a way to start sharing that data. I'm not sure how you do that, because obviously mm. it's a ton of proprietary yeah. IP in there. But um, yeah, I, I think that's when the breakthrough will come, when the industry figures out how to create the data sets. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. And as I say, I kind of understand that you know, life science, farmer, it's it's a space that won't move as fast as many other industries, maybe to adopt, you know, digital um, metaverse cycles or such. No, that's fine. What, what's your thoughts, Patrick, on the future for MES then? So when I started recruiting MES professionals, maybe kind of seven or eight years ago, there was a lot of systems that were monolithic, on-prem. You know, what, what do you think is the future for MES over the next kind of five, 10 years as maybe more companies adopt a smaller cloud-based solution. What's your thoughts on the progression there? Yeah, I, I definitely think you're going to see companies moving in that direction. I think that the monolith solution has probably seen its day. Mm. Um, it's proven to be uh, unwieldy and, and really unscalable and unmanageable. So I think agility is probably going to be kind of the leading, the leading thing that customers are going to be looking for. And that comes with kind of breaking these solutions down into more manageable pieces. You know, something we, we do here at Palms is we have regular releases of our product twice a year to kind of ensure that we're keeping current with the functionality that customers are looking for, right? Okay. So one way to break down that, that, that monolith is to, is to have regular releases coming out that get new functionality every year and every six months so that you can continually grow your product, right? And so that's, that's something that allows us to, to be agile. We can react to customers' project needs in a timely fashion. Um, I think technology adoption is going to probably be a bit all over the map still. You know, I yeah. think it's going to be driven more by risk profile than what the technology <laughs> is necessarily capable of. Sure. Um, you know, and, and but I think, you know, obviously some of the newer tech, the, some of the hot technologies of today, which have actually become mature in, in and of themselves, technologies like cloud hosting, mm -hmm. you, know, you still see a very small adoption rate, really, relatively speaking. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity there. So I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think data security and cyber security was a big area that, you know, maybe kind of four or five years ago before the whole kind of cloud native and, you know, yep. more platforms are based on the cloud. But it seems like a lot of companies are maybe a little bit more confident with putting things in the cloud, a little bit less, you know, scared or, or concerned about that security piece. So, yeah, I guess there'll be more cloud adoption. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're starting to see the emergence of companies like Validated Cloud in Boston who are GMP certified cloud hosting providers, right? Okay. So they, they understand the importance of that security and the need for companies to meet that level of regulation and that validation, and they tailored their offering to that, right? So they're not a, an Azure or an AWS, you know, but who I think are also starting to understand the value yeah. there. You know, the companies like that, the smaller cloud hosters, I think are kind of out front leading the charge to help it eat, to make it easier for companies to adopt cloud technology. No, excellent. And is the POM solution fully cloud-based or what, what is the? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a um, web-based application, okay. HTML5 on the front end, C-sharp on the back end. It can be deployed, most of our customers deploy it in an on-prem end-tier solution, end-tier server client solution. But we also have, I'd say, maybe 10 or 12 customers who are running cloud-based solutions and cloud-based instances of it. Okay. So, and we work with Validated Cloud as an example with some of those companies. Um, 
And we also have worked with companies who have rolled it out on AWS. And so we're simply a software as a truly a software as a service as opposed to infrastructure. Um, but sure. it is completely capable of kind of floating between all those different, those different realms. And I think one of the opportunities we see going forward for our particular product offering is there will probably come a day when companies are comfortable enough to not only have their data in the cloud, but to have it in a multi-tenant situation. I mean, even wow. companies going to the cloud today, their data is so segregated that it's just, it's a private cloud for all intents and purposes, yeah. right? which is where they're comfortable. But there will come a day when multi-tenant is, is does start to become accepted, and we want to be there and ready with our products for that for that day. And what will drive that that change, Patrick? Is it cost saving or or more confidence that data is secure? What would what would drive that change? I I, I think it'll be a combination. It'll be some some level of cost savings. Although I think the cloud hosting companies today have gotten the cost down to a point where it's almost negligible whether you're in a single or multi-tenant. Um, but I think really what we'll see more is we were talking earlier about the next generation of leaders mm -hmm. coming through and, and setting the bar higher for an expectation of technology. And so I think we will start to see customers more comfortable with more regular, faster releases of the okay. software. And, and in order to manage that, you, you almost have to kind of start moving toward a a, a cloud-based um, Salesforce type of model if you're a multi-tenant. Yes, model. okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think that's still good. It's a long way off, right? But Yes, okay. No, interesting. I mean, it goes a little bit away from where my strengths lie and where my understanding lies. So I'm not going to dig any deeper there. <laughs> one, just to, to circle back, Patrick, you mentioned, you know, one of the challenges that, that, that you face and you've seen over the last few years has been the pinch on hiring top talent and you know securing top talent in the market. You know what what are what are POMs doing to to secure top talent and you know how are you attracting people to the business and you know getting getting yourselves out there to right. the next generation? Yeah. So I mean we're we're certainly working all the kind of traditional models, you know, from social media to you know postings on the website and and we work our our network pretty hard, right? We we yeah. do have an, we, we interact with a lot of people every day and we keep in contact with those people and over time, you, you know, you, you think to reach out to people and see how they they're doing in their careers, just to and check in, just to check in, right? <laughs> so we do we do kind of keep that ongoing conversation with, with certainly with people we come across in our dealings that we think they would be a great fit for our company, right? So there's a there's definitely a long game that gets played mm. uh, to some extent, um, and then when we are talking with people, we we really kind of sell, which I think is something really unique to Palms is is kind of the situation we're in. We're, we're a completely autonomous business. We get to make decisions about what we're going to do strategically with our product, who we're going to sell to, how we're going to sell it. All of the revenue we generate, we can invest back in the company, the Palms okay. company. So even though we're part of a big company with CSI, it's not this traditional model where you send all your money up to corporate and then they dole out to whomever their, their favorite people sure. are. We, we are we, we have a tremendous amount of autonomy. So. We had, it's kind of the best of both worlds. We have this great, strong company backing us, yes. providing horizontal functions like HR and legal. But um, when it comes to actually running the business, we're, we're a 75-person company and, and yeah. it's a small, little, intimate company. And they're not, they're tell, they get, we get to tell ourselves every day what we want to do, yeah. where we're going to go. That's a pretty pretty unique place to be in. And, and I guess there, there's other companies who have got the, the small agile with the, the big financial backing and the kind of, infrastructure that that brings but i guess having your own autonomy is a, is a great place to be and it puts you in a it puts you in the driving seat patrick 
Right. It, it does. It does. And it, it's, it's also great when you're talking to, you know, prospective candidates, because I mean, looking at myself as an example, right, I, there is opportunity to move around as if there is a big company behind you, because there is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you want to stay and operate every day in that small company, you have that capability as well. Right. So, um, you know, you, again, you kind of get a career growth standpoint. You, you do have the best of both worlds. No, that makes sense. And, and I guess it would be remiss of me not to ask this then, considering the autonomy you mentioned. Where, where, where do you see and, and where are you taking problems over the next kind of three, four, five years? I appreciate there's probably lots you can't share. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I would love a, some juicy gossip, but I, but I appreciate that might not be possible. But yeah, what's the direction for problems? What's the kind of five year plans for, for yourselves? Yeah. So we're looking right now. I mean, we, we see ourselves as a product company. We're, we're in our hearts, we're, we're a software company, right? And so yeah. that's where we're always going to be centered and focused. And we are looking at our current family of products, Fomsnetic, Aquila, and the product navigation kit and so on. And we see limitations with it that in 10 years are going to be problems for us. And so sure. we're already starting to look ahead and looking at the technologies that we think will be more mainstream at that time and trying to either shift the product that direction or basically start afresh with a whole new product, which is in and of itself a scary thing, right? Because building MES solutions is a long journey, right? Yeah, I bet. But, <laughs> but we are we are looking five, 10 years down the road, thinking to ourselves in 10 years, if we're still rolling out the product we have, we, we're probably in a bad spot, right? Mm. Um, we are looking increasingly toward more of the cloud technologies to be the basis of some of that stuff. Uh, containerization is just now starting to gain some level of maturity. Yeah. I think there's a huge untapped potential there when it comes to products like um, the MES and, and other adjacent products that we interact with. So I think you'll start to see a merger of some of those technologies that are just starting to come into their own. Um, and then the other thing too, is that we spend a lot of time talking to customers and yeah. most of the features that go into our, our releases, about 80 to hundred new features are released. Um, are driven by the voice of the customer, right? There are mm -hmm. things that they're telling us, God, it would really be great if the application did this and, or could it do this? And we take their specific requirement and kind of abstract it a little bit and say, how could we apply this at a more product level where it's a little more generic that more people could use it? And then we'll put that into the product and that's how we add value. So you'll see that continuing to, to occur every release, not just in the long term. No, it makes sense. And I guess that that aligns with the culture that, that you, you, you're fostering because that, that circles back to what you were saying from your days at Magic, where you'd been sitting opposite the customer, hearing about the, the kind of success stories or the not so success stories where it can change. So that's a, that's a cultural thing. Very much so. Absolutely. I, re I really do um, push that in the organization as much as I can because it's been so important to me in my career. And yeah. I do believe that there's true value um, in, in positioning the company that way, right? It seems logical. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's, I don't know if you've read, there was a book back in the 90s called The Discipline of Market Leaders, and it kind of hypothesized yeah. that there were three basic kind of companies. If you're an innovative company like an Apple, you go out and create a market that no one knew need, they needed, but by God, they, yeah. when they had it, it was great. If you have operational excellent companies like Walmart, you create value by squeezing out cost. And then you have companies that are client intimate, companies that know the business as well as their customers. And that's where Palms is in its heart and soul okay. as the magic is. That's that's how we want who we want to be. So. Wow. Okay. That sounds interesting. I'll look out for that. I'm always yeah. looking at kind of learning these things. So no, I appreciate that recommendation.
Um, and I guess on that note, Patrick, we'll, we'll wrap things up. I appreciate you're a busy guy. So thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Great having you. You too, and, uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll put a link to, to POMS in the comments and um, my network and, and people can start to see a little bit more about what you guys are doing and uh, how well you're doing it. All right, I appreciate it, Daniel. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. All right.